You're listening to the Dublin Review podcast in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. I'm Angela Flannery. In this episode of the Dublin Review podcast, I'm talking to Kevin Power about a personal essay he wrote called In the Call Centre that was published in number 70, the spring 2018 issue of the Review. Kevin Power is the author of two novels, Bad Day in Black Rock, which was filmed as What Richard Did, directed by Lenny Abramson. His second novel, White City, was published in 2021. Kevin is the winner of the 2009 Rooney Prize for Irish Literature. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, The Dublin Review and The Stinging Fly. Kevin is a book reviewer and he teaches creative writing in the School of English at Trinity College Dublin. Kevin, thank you for joining me on the Dublin Review podcast. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to be here. Well, I have to say this personal essay, it really when I read it first, it was so relatable because I don't know anybody that hasn't had a soul-destroying job. Um, could you tell me a little bit about uh, how you got the idea for In the Coal Centre? I wrote it because I had this huge burden of of experience that I, I, I didn't know what else to do with. And you often write things because of that, I think. There's a kind of pressure you feel. And it is because I had spent... 18 months working in this call center part-time um, for a company who, who shall remain nameless in the essay I call them the major provider of TV and broadband the major provider I'm going to leave it at that and uh, I it, it made me so depressed and angry and it gave me such feelings of kind of impotence and, and despair about the, the nature of the world you know that we live in you know that we're I, they, I, I felt that I had to do something with those feelings. And also because I wanted to write down before I forgot it, because when you leave a job like that, you, as a kind of self-protective measure, you forget most of the horrible, granular details of what you have been forced to do all day. I wanted to write down all the details as a kind of you know, purgative, you know, as a, you know, a, a, a catharsis, if you will, of, of trying to, you know, expel, exercise all of these horrible kind of, details that I'd had to live with for all this time. And rereading the essay last night as I did, I, I would that, that's what struck me that I had been very almost anthropological about it or sociological. I had I had very carefully written down what you do in a job like that. And I hadn't seen anyone do that before. I had read around about call center work and, you know, I've I've I had done my kind of due diligence in terms of you know what research has been done on it, and what you know what kind of uh, you know kinds of books and articles have been written about it. But I'd never seen anyone simply describe you know the incredible granular boredom and frustration of of you know all these contradictory rules, all these incredibly um, you know mindless uh, bits of corporate propaganda that you're subjected to on a, on an hourly basis. I wanted to get all of that down, and I, I, I and I did, and that was I think the impulse, and it came out of anger. It did, I, you know. I, I didn't want to be doing that job. Um, and I think that's a very common feeling uh, for anyone who does wind up doing a job like this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely it is. And um, how long was there between you leaving the job and writing this piece? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wrote some of this piece in the job. Um, I had a, a, a secret Word document open on my computer in the call centre and I, I made notes um, as, as, I, as I worked or failed to work as the... Um, occasion demanded. Um, so, and I remember writing, going outside on my on my break, um, and you know, because you go, you, you had to leave the place to go outside. And I don't 
I had given up smoking by this point, but I still went outside as if I was a smoker in order to just get away, get outside. And I stood outside making notes on my phone and I, for paragraphs that really did end up mostly unchanged in the piece. Um, mm. So that was in my last kind of two or three weeks. Um, as a kind of farewell, I, uh, I started writing this, this essay without any notion necessarily of publishing it. Um, and then when, when I had it done, and it was 10,000 words in its first draft, it was very long. It was, I had a lot to get off. You were off venting. My, I was venting, yes. I had a lot to get off my chest. And I, I, that was the draft I sent to Brendan Barrington at the Dublin Review. Once I realized, I thought, oh, okay, this is, you know, this might be worth publishing. It might be something mm. other people might want to read. Um, uh, and he, he helped me trim it down, uh, you know, to get rid of some of the more, <laughs> some, of the, some of the more intemperate, you know, you know bits. Mm-hmm. And did you find that it, I mean, you're going to talk, well, you write in the essay, which we're going to hear you read shortly. Um, did you find that the actual practice of sitting down and writing it, did it dislodge some kind of block in you? Like, did it, did it help you? It did, yeah. It's funny. It, it, if you most people who write anything, you know, not you know, if they don't have to be a professional writer. If they write a diary, if they do anything like that, they know that writing something down has a secret power, and it it, it tends to to it, it just puts it outside you, and in a way, it becomes something you don't have to think about obsessively anymore. I think this is kind of one of the things that makes people make art of any kind mm-hmm. to get rid of something that's obsessing them um, and it does yeah and I, I have I reread as I say I reread this essay last night I hadn't looked at it since it came out and uh, and I was kind of stunned to find how much anger I had put in it um, but it, it, but it worked that's an anger I don't feel anymore you know, it was yeah useful to write. In, Do you still have way. the ten thousand word draft? Imagine how angry Somewhere, that. Somewhere, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably should delete that from my hard drive. Yeah, bury that. So, bury yes, that yeah, one. Yeah. Okay, look. Um, let's have you read it, and then uh, we'll talk a little bit more about it um, afterwards. And now here's Kevin Power reading his personal essay in the Call Centre, which was published in Number Seventy, the Spring 2018 issue of the Dublin Review. In January 2016, for the usual grim reasons of economic necessity, I took a part-time job in a Dublin call centre, intending to stay for six months and then get the hell out. In the event, having no alternative, I stayed for 18 months. My employer was a major provider of TV and broadband that, for the purposes of this essay, I will call the major provider. My job title was cell advisor, although later, and through no fault of my own, I was promoted to cell specialist. My classic cohort of new recruits was subjected to eight weeks of training, which included numerous PowerPoint presentations delivered by shirt-sleeved middle management types who told us that the major provider was a great place to work. We have a cultural aspiration here, said one of these middle management types, referring not to the major provider's televised content nor to its sponsorship of various charities and development programs, but to its cult of positivity. In its devotion to this cult, the major provider appears to be more or less typical. In the corporate world, positivity is held to be a sine qua non of success. It is also apotropaic, the thing that wards off failure. The training took place in a white-walled classroom festooned with optimistic bump. One of the largest motivational posters in this classroom said, Happy people value being here. During training, we were asked to fill a whiteboard with examples of positive vocabulary. Amazing, brilliant, absolutely, definitely, yes. As a corollary to this, negative vocab was keenly discouraged. At the major provider, there were no failures, only development areas. 
and there were no mistakes, only challenges or opportunities. On our inaugural tour of the call centre itself, we were shown the positivity pillar, a concrete column to which employees of the major provider had blue-tacked pictures and slogans representing their plans for the future. A postcard of blue sea and tawny sand, somebody's dream holiday. A photograph of the desert, somebody's trip to Coachella. A printed A4 sheet said, a goal without a plan is just a wish. Clearly an attempt at something like large-scale neuro-linguistic programming was being undertaken. Change people's vocab, went the unspoken Sapper-Warfian logic, and you will change the way they behave. But at this early juncture, I didn't know the half of it. It wasn't until I had been on the phones for a couple of months that I began dimly to grasp the nature of the problem, which briefly stated was this. We were supposed to stay positive in order to do our job, but the job itself thoroughly refuted or nullified all positive feeling, and there was no way to reconcile these things without incurring serious psychological damage. When I started working at the major provider, I was 34 and more or less broke. In 2008, I had published a novel, Bad Day in Black Rock, that had sold reasonably well and had been turned into a movie, What Richard Did, directed by Lenny Abrahamson. I appeared regularly in the papers reviewing books. When a second novel failed, as second novels sometimes will, to materialise on time, I pursued a sketchy plan B to become an academic and resumed work towards a PhD in American literature, which I finished in 2013. But teaching jobs were not immediately forthcoming, and I was in dire need of a steady income. The money I had earned from the novel, averaged out over the years that I spent as a freelance writer, added up to considerably less than the average industrial wage. Nevertheless, people assumed I was rich. They filmed your book, my GP said to me back in 2013. I had gone to see him about my anxiety. You must be a multi. But as I explained, the money from what Richard did had barely covered the year I spent finishing the doctorate. Only non-writers were surprised to read in the Sunday Independent in February 2017 that Donald Ryan, who had published three well-received books in five years and had just signed a contract for three more, felt obliged to return to his career in the civil service. Fellow writers were far more likely to envy Mr. Ryan his pensionable day job. My gig at the major provider wasn't my first time working in a call centre. From November 2013 to September 2014, while I was interviewing for teaching jobs, I worked for a Dublin-based B2B telemarketing outfit generating sales leads for IT companies. B2B stands for business to business and means, in practice, that you spend your day cold calling a list of managers and purchasers and reading from a prepared script. The leads thus generated are then purchased by clients who will attempt to sell their products to the people with whom you have already spoken. After six months of doing this, I was certain that B2B telemarketing is as close to purely meaningless as any human activity can get. The major provider, conversely, operates an inbound call centre. People call, you answer. During my 18 months in the job, I answered over 3,000 phone calls. On each one, I strove to sell the major provider's brand of TV or broadband to prospective customers or to upsell optional extras to people who were already in contract. Before I worked for the major provider, I had only the haziest notions about how TV and broadband actually worked. Now I can tell you the difference between ADSL and fibre-ready landlines, between satellite and streaming television, go for satellite, it's more reliable, between upload speed and download speed. I can also tell you how to persuade a customer to buy something, 
ask open questions, get them to say yes three times. Above all, be positive. The major provider's call centre is a large open plan office. Each desk has its broken swivel chair and its black computer terminal. Printouts taped to the frosted glass partitions between the bays remind you to use big picture questions early and effectively or to use linking statements to influence. Flat screen TVs hang from the ceiling showing golf or football or incoming call cues. There is the white noise of multiplied human voices. People murmur into their headsets. They murmur and type, murmur and type. Everyone uses the same words and phrases so that you hear different stages of the same conversation happening all around you in a variety of accents and tones, endlessly, as in a very boring dream. Broadband, everyone says. On-demand content. In terms of the broadband, we need your air code. Send out an engineer. Broadband. In terms of the broadband, read a few terms and conditions. How can I help you today? In terms of the broadband, confirm your name, address and password. Security purposes, terms and conditions. And do you have Wi-Fi in the house there? Name, address and password. Engineer visit in terms of the broadband. From the ceiling, circular cardboard mobiles dangle. Take ownership, they say. Do the right thing. Work as a team. You plug your headset into your assigned computer terminal and open up your various systems, call logging, telephony, office internet. On the telephony screen, you click ready. You are now available to take calls. Each call arrives preceded by a blurry electronic chime to which you very quickly develop a violent Pavlovian reaction. Ignoring the clot of panic and dismay that seems to have formed in your heart, you say in an upbeat tone of voice, hello, you're through to the major provider. My name is Kevin. How can I help you today? It's important to say today, this creates urgency. Whatever the customer then says, you say, absolutely no problem, I'd be delighted to help you with that. This is called your acknowledgement. Its ostensible purpose is to make the customer feel that their needs have been understood. Next, you embark on your discovery, which involves asking the customer a series of open questions. Discovery is supposed to be the longest part of your call. A good discovery, our trainers and team leaders advise us, should take at least 10 minutes and ideally 15. The more you learn during your discovery, we are assured, the better you will be at objection handling in the later sections of the call. As a general rule, discovery is a bust. The customer has not called up to answer questions for 15 minutes. He or she has called up to find out how much their TV or broadband is going to cost. But you are discouraged from quoting a price until at least 10 minutes of the call have elapsed. The longer the customer is on the phone, again, in theory, the more likely they are to buy something from you. At length, you pitch. You quote the standard monthly price for the everything bundle, which is preposterously high. The customer points out that the price you've quoted is preposterously high. You are then encouraged to objection handle using the information you gleaned during your discovery. The customer continues to haver. At this point, you pitch your offers, which means that you subtract a large percentage from the standard price. There are always offers. After a week on the job, you learn that anyone who pays full price for their TV or broadband is a fool. The customer agrees to sign up, or far more frequently, they say that they will need to talk things over with their partner before they commit to a 12-month contract. Around now, remaining chummily upbeat, you present various arguments in favour of signing up today, right now, no hesitation. None of these arguments are convincing, but you are obliged to deliver them as if they were. In fact, some of these arguments are outright lies. For example, that offer won't be here tomorrow or I can get you an early install. A note of desperation enters your voice. The feeling of dismay in your chest begins to grow. 
you are aware that a significant chunk of your monthly incentive payment hinges on a successful first-time resolution. From his desk in the corner, where he monitors everyone's stats on his laptop, your team leader is eavesdropping on the conversation. You are aware that a significant chunk of his monthly incentive payment rides on these calls. Finally, throwing up your hands but forcing your voice to remain cheerful and calm, you promise the customer a free install, which means that the price of the installation visit will be deducted from your incentive payment, but not from that of your TL. You're not going to get a better deal than that, you say, or that's only if you go with me today, but the customer is adamant they need more time or they suspect that they can haggle their way to a better deal with a rival provider. Giving up, by now 35 minutes have elapsed since the call began, you agree to hold the offer and call the customer back tomorrow. This is a suboptimal outcome. Most of the time when you dial the customer's number the following day, they do not pick up. You log the call as a no-sale. At the start of your next shift, you receive an email from your TL that says you are below target for the week. You have followed the call plan precisely, you have taken ownership, you have done the right thing, your sale figures in the TL's emails are highlighted in red. When you Google call center work, one of the suggested searches that pops up is call center work is soul destroying. Click on this and you will find, among other things, a blog entitled Call Center Fury, which consists of a single 5,000 word entry in which an anonymous phone jockey, apparently based in the UK, catalogues the damaging psychological effects of working in a call center. A study published in the journal Nursing and Health Sciences in 2017 looked at 306 employees of a call centre in Korea and reported that more than half of the participants reported high levels of depression, anxiety and stress. The study went on to suggest that, in the interest of improving the mental health of call centre employees, their job demands and emotional dissonance should be reduced and the work environment be improved. When you Google the term emotional dissonance, you find an article in a journal called Theory and Psychology, which defines it as a feeling of unease that occurs when someone evaluates an emotional experience as a threat to his or her identity. The website of the US National Institutes of Health offers this. In the workplace, emotional dissonance is the conflict between experienced emotions and emotions expressed to conform to display rules. My working hours at the major provider proved a fruitful source of emotional dissonance. One manifestation of this, for me, was what psychologists call negative self-talk. Trudging home at 9pm, I would strike up an inner aria of self-reproach. Everything you've written for the last eight years has been garbage. Whatever the magical ingredient is that makes someone a writer, you don't have it. A dozen writers younger and stupider than you are succeeding and you're working in a call centre for derisory pay. Other writers work regular hours churning out pages. Why are you so lazy and slow? Other people have made a career out of this. Why can't you? Other people are able to manage their money. Why aren't you? Here you are pretending to be pleasant to people on the phone. Didn't you want to grow up to be James Joyce? Accompanying this aria, providing, as it were, the backing vocals, were classic symptoms of anxiety. A metallic taste in my mouth, the sensation of a cold blade pressed to the base of my skull. I began to dread the moment at which I would have to lie down in bed and turn off the light, because this was when the real fun would begin. No second novel yet, champ. How long has it been since the deadline passed, anyway? You've written three since then, and they were all shit. The first one was obviously a fluke. Maybe you should just go full-time at the call centre and get it over with. Embrace failure, since that's so clearly your inescapable destiny. Often in the last few seconds before I finally fell asleep, 
I would hear my own voice say distinctly, Hello, you're through to the major provider. My name is Kevin. How can I help you today? During my off hours, I was generally capable of maintaining a precarious emotional equilibrium. But after a short spell in work on a Monday evening, say, when I was scheduled to take calls between five and nine, I would once again start to feel so angry and sad and impotent and humiliated that my stomach would cramp and my hands would shake, and I would repeatedly imagine grabbing my computer monitor and smashing it to the floor, or punching it in its smooth black liquid crystal face. I also experienced a range of what were eventually diagnosed as psychosomatic stress responses. After six months at the major provider, I was prescribed a proton pump inhibitor for gastritis. At one point I had to go to the emergency room when I vomited blood. After eight months, I was prescribed a topical gel for rosacea. By the end of my 18 months at the major provider, I was suffering from anxiety, insomnia, decreased pleasure in everyday activities, diminished libido, fits of motiveless weeping, and recurrent feelings of worthlessness and despair. All of which, according to the American Psychiatric Association's Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition, qualify as symptoms of major depressive disorder, or, perhaps more reassuringly, of a major depressive episode. In his book Capitalist Realism, the late Mark Fisher notes that there exists, quote, on the one hand, an official culture in which capitalist enterprises are presented as socially responsible and caring, and, on the other, a widespread awareness that companies are actually corrupt, ruthless, etc. When you try to sell a customer something over the phone, you are standing on precisely this fault line. You are instructed to be friendly, caring, interested, and empathetic, and, at the same time, to do everything in your power to make money for an organization that is neither friendly, nor caring, nor interested, nor empathetic. Both you and the customer are fully aware of this. To speak to 3,000 strangers on the phone, one after another, over the course of 18 months, is to be continually astonished at how willing people are, having initiated a phone conversation, to be rude to the person who answers. During my 18 months at the major provider, I became intimately acquainted with every possible modality of sullenness, aggression, condescension, brusqueness, curtness, hostility, abusiveness, and wrath. Among the part-timers, it is axiomatic that customers are both stupid and rude. Is there some kind of festival of stupidity on today or something? A part-time sales specialist once asked in my hearing. But if you mention this axiom to the TLs or two ICs, second in commands, if you say that the reason you were about to log a no sale is that the customer was too stupid to understand the basic terms of the contract or simply so rude as to be immune to polite interchange, they will assume a blank screen buffering expression like androids encountering an insoluble paradox. Then, as the programming kicks in, they will once again remind you to do your discovery or try your objection handling. Offer him the first month free, they suggest. Tell him we'll get him an earlier install. Above all, they will say, let's look at the positive side of this. Let's make a positive statement. A positive statement. But it is surprisingly disheartening being continually interrupted when you are trying to speak. It is also surprisingly provoking being told that you are incompetent or being branded a liar or a cheat. Once I spoke to a woman from the UK who had just moved to rural Ireland. We shared a bit of back and forth about the stresses of moving house. We were, I thought, getting along pretty well. I sold her a discounted TV and broadband package using the deepest offers available. I processed her credit card payment, no problem there. Then, as I was droning through the terms and conditions, and we had by now enjoyed a full half hour of superficial telephonic camaraderie, 
She abruptly shouted that she didn't want TV or broadband and that I was a liar who had misled her. I found myself apologising, though I wasn't sure for what. Fuck you, the woman said angrily. It's bollocks. She hung up. I found that my heart was thumping in my chest. The woman's mood and tone had changed so precipitately that I experienced it as a kind of assault. It was as if a stranger at a bus stop had just punched me in the stomach. Perhaps I had no business being upset by this incident. At the time, I wondered if something in the T's and C's, the guts of which I'd already covered during our chat, had put her off, though that still wouldn't explain the vehemence of her change in mood. And of course, it was just a phone call, just another part of my part-time job. And as I was repeatedly reminded by fellow agents, nothing that happened in the call centre could possibly matter in any real, tangible sense. But it is upsetting to find yourself the target of inexplicable vituperation. You are, after all, only human. My TL, when I told him about the woman's sudden change in mood, was sanguine. The sale, he noted, had gone through. The woman had willingly keyed her credit card details into the phone, and she had not asked me to undo the sale. She was now a customer of the major provider. After a while, I began to remind myself of Willie Loman from Death of a Salesman, who thinks that he can build a career on being well-liked. The most successful agents, the full-timers, were frankly argumentative on the phone. I'm not shouting at you, Maria, I once heard a full-timer shout into his headset. I'm trying to help you, and you're just going around in circles. The full-time agents were inured to rudeness. They simply responded in kind. The part-timers in general were just passing through. Most of them were studying for degrees in marketing or law at UCD or Trinity. The TLs and 2ICs, by contrast, had mostly left school after their leaving certs or dropped out of university. Most of them were in their 20s and had been working for the major provider for most of their adult lives. Like many of my fellow agents, I was reporting to people who were younger than me. My TL, 13 years my junior, told us, I've no plans for the future, I'm happy here. One part-timer, a man in his early 30s, was working on an app. On his 15-minute break, he sat in the canteen reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or Think and Grow Rich. If something doesn't happen by the end of March, I'll have to go full-time, he said, with a fatalistic sigh. Going full-time was a fate to be avoided at all costs. Among the full-timers, there was a subset of thwarted musicians and filmmakers. Once, I found several pages of a screenplay in the output tray of the photocopier. One of the two ICs told me he had taken his job with the major provider when his band failed to secure a record deal. Now he spent his weekends taking MDMA and, while he recovered from that, playing Xbox. For the most part, though, the full-timers were enthusiastic adherents of the positivity cult. They quoted the major provider's advertising slogans with approval and said things like, smash it. Many of them worked out in the gym five days a week. Haven't deadlifted in three days, a 2IC remarked to me in the canteen. I feel like a batty boy. The canteen workers, immigrants all, were among the most visibly depressed employees I have ever seen anywhere. They sighed as they foamed your flavourless cappuccino. Get me out of here, I once heard one of them mutter to himself as he restocked the fridge with cans of Diet Coke. If the part-time sales agents were at the bottom of the major provider's corporate totem pole, then the canteen workers were somewhere even lower. A few months after I became a cell advisor, I began to entertain visions of myself dressed in sunglasses and a long black coat striding purposefully through the lobby of the major provider's building with a shotgun held loosely at my side. These visions always came to an end before I imagined myself pulling the trigger. I didn't actually want to shoot anyone. 
what I wanted to attack, what I imagined myself bringing down, was, I think, the major provider itself. And it occurs to me, belatedly, that the world is full of people who entertain such fantasies, people who, like me, are horrified by news of mass shootings, but who, nonetheless, can find no other way of expressing their anger at the world they live in, save through violent daydreams of revenge. They aren't personal, these daydreams. It isn't your TL or your sales manager that you want to destroy. They are, after all, decent people doing their best, like you. To strike a fisherian note, what you want to destroy is the smiley face of capitalism itself, the true source of your humiliation and rage. Some calls are fine. A customer wants to pay an overdue bill or their satellite connection has come unstuck. You take the payment or you transfer them to tech support. There is no need to go through the rigmarole of a discovery. There is no need to try to sell them anything. Occasionally a man, it is always a man with an address in an obscure townland, calls up to order pay-per-view porn. I'd like to order one of the adult channels, he says in a hoarse stammer. You are strangely moved. You want to help this man. You want to soothe his audible embarrassment. From his stammer, you infer a whole heartbreaking narrative of rural bachelorhood and sexual deprivation. You scroll through the list of channels with their quaint titles, triple X nurses, naughty teachers. Once I had to tell such a customer that due to a technical issue, we were unable to activate the adult channels at present. This is certainly the only time I have ever been compelled to thwart a stranger's wank. When a call comes through, it is accompanied by an app tag on your telephony screen that tells you what kind of call it is. At, it says, for attraction calls. Attraction means new business. Attraction calls are therefore the ones over which the TLs and sales managers most dependably lose their shit. The number of attraction calls that you have answered in a given week is compared with the number of attraction calls on which you have successfully sold the major provider's products and a percentage is calculated. Targets are set. You are supposed to sell on 67% of your attraction calls. Perhaps a third of the calls that come in on the attraction line are not attraction calls at all, i.e. they are not calls from prospective customers but from existing customers who want you to fix their broadband or who want to know why their bill is so high. It is, of course, impossible to sell anything on these calls. A 67% attraction stat is therefore what you might call a utopian ask. Was that on the attraction line, my TL asks, as I log a no sale? Existing customer, I say. On the pillar beside my desk, I notice, someone has drawn a stick figure image of a hanged man. Unexplained acronyms proliferate. Can you log that for OTR, says a 2IC. What does OTR stand for, I ask. The 2IC shrugs. Once I had to explain to my own TL that KPI meant Key Performance Indicator. This acronymic bewilderment is symptomatic of a larger confusion. To adapt William Goldman's epigram about Hollywood, nobody at the major provider knows anything. The various departments do not communicate with one another, except via illiterate notes appended to customers' accounts. Every shift I spent a significant amount of call time trying to account for my colleague's potluck spelling. Searching for an address was pointless, since even simple place names like a thigh or sycamore generally appeared on the system as mutant approximations of themselves. Nor, incidentally, should the customer be treated as an authority on how to spell their own address, or even, in some cases, their own name. When you call the major provider with a technical or billing problem, you will be speaking to someone who, in all likelihood, knows absolutely nothing about your problem and has no way of finding out what, if anything, has already been done to fix it. 
Absolutely, we say. I can definitely help you with that. But in a large number of cases, we can't. And nor can we put you through to someone who can. This is why the customers are rude or sullen. And this is why we are often rude or sullen in return. A TL prowls the floor at all times, stroking the mouse pad of a laptop, checking everyone's aux codes, i.e. their telephony status. Unplanned break, on a call, ready, after call work, outbound, etc. Anyone who lingers too long in an unproductive aux code is harangued by their TL or receives a snotty email. Eight minutes ACW, do you think we can't see this? It is possible to reset your aux code so that you jump to the back of the call queue. This is called call dodging. Call dodging is frowned upon and widely practiced. I was an inveterate call dodger. I timed my unplanned breaks carefully. I switched into outbound on the sly, ensuring that the agent to my left would get the next attraction call instead of me. In 18 months, no one ever told me to stop doing this. Bafflingly, my productivity stats were among the highest on the floor. We worked with shabby equipment, always deteriorating. Computer terminals frequently lacked mice or keyboards. The systems were sluggish and ungainly. It took five full minutes to process a simple TV order. Frequently, the order would cancel at the last minute for reasons unknown, meaning that you had to go all the way back to the start. There was no way of controlling the volume of your headset. Sometimes the customers were barely audible. Sometimes they were so loud that you had to hold the headset a few inches from your face. The revolving door at the front of the building was broken and needed to be shoved with a strong shoulder. The turnstiles in the lobby where we were meant to swipe our ID cards didn't work. The unlit vending machine in the kitchen bore an apologetic note. In 18 months, no one came to repair the machine. The fixtures and fittings of the floor itself were in an advanced state of entropic decay. And yet, looking around, you would notice that the TLs and their fellow middle managers were expending prodigious amounts of energy. Busy, busy, busy. Why doesn't anything get fixed? What the fuck are these people doing all day? The answer to this question is that they are tracking your stats. In other words, they are keeping an eye on how much money you have made for the company that day. Or they are listening to recordings of your calls and grading them according to a 30-question template. Not every call is listened to, but every call might be listened to. And this creates the sensation that you are being monitored at all times, even when your TL is not physically present. During my first 12 months at the major provider, my attraction numbers tended to hover around 58%, below target, but not abysmal. Thereafter, and in tandem with the dwindling of my morale, my numbers dropped to the low 40s. No one was ever actually criticised for their failures, if you discount the frequent hostile shouts on the floor of, can you go available, please? Instead, your TL would grimace and say, challenging day. If you consistently failed to hit your KPIs, you would be put on a personal development plan, which meant attending twice-weekly coaching sessions with a TL or 2IC. During these sessions, you were made to listen to your own calls and sign a document that said you would take certain steps going forward. So mention broadband on every call, yeah, says your TL, giving you a thumbs up. For a week or two, you dutifully mention broadband on every call. You continue to sell the same amount of broadband as you did before. After a coaching session, I generally felt a knot of pain in my stomach and a violent sense of humiliation and rage. My gastritis flared up. I began to wonder if I had an ulcer or a hiatal hernia. My shirt was soaked in sweat.
Stretch out your calls, our two IC would say, making a stretching gesture. But we were also under pressure to make as many sales as possible. Attempting to reconcile these conflicting demands induced a sense of panic. The electronic chime sounds in your ear. The at tag appears on your screen. You scramble to remember the half dozen things that you were supposed to do. Get the customer's mobile number. Do your duplicate account checks. Do your discovery. I'm just inquiring, right, the customer says at once. I'm not going to sign up today, so don't bother trying to sell me anything. The call is already a no sale. Or another problem will present itself. The caller is an existing customer or they have no phone line in their house and are therefore unable to get broadband or they won't have money in their bank account until Friday. There was also the boredom. Working for the major provider, I was reminded of something that I had not known since school, that real boredom is a physical emergency. You feel it as a pressure in your chest. Your present circumstances offer so little nourishment for the soul, the heart, the head, that you will do anything to escape them. You will go for a pointless bathroom visit and stand in a cubicle until your allotted time for unplanned breaks has elapsed. You will evade that next attraction call by any means necessary. By the end of my time on the floor, I experienced a reflexive seizure of dismay every time I saw the word at appear on my screen. I was like a dog that cringes when it sees a newspaper. In this respect, I was typical. All around me, whenever people threw up their hands in despair or hung their heads in silence, I knew that they had just answered an attraction call. While I was working at the major provider, a young man who worked in another department committed suicide. I never met this young man, although I had, at some point, almost certainly transferred a customer to his line. Our senior sales manager, visibly shaken, asked us in a meeting not to keep our fears and worries to ourselves going forward. Our TLs, he said, were always available to talk. One month later, we were taken off the phones for an hour and made to sit through a workshop given by a suicide prevention charity. An upbeat middle-aged man showed us a flip chart. Are you, he said, a red square, a green triangle or a yellow circle? A middle-aged woman told us the story of her own suicide attempt and then led us in a mindfulness exercise. Breathe in, there is only the past, which is nothing, and the future, which doesn't matter. We were given promise jars tied with coloured ribbon in which we were supposed to collect positive thoughts scribbled on bits of paper. As we shuffled out of the workshop, one of my fellow cell specialists asked me sotto voce if my wife, who is a psychologist, might put her in touch with an inexpensive therapist. She was, she said, suffering from anxiety. Lately, this had taken the form of panic attacks that she was trying to medicate by smoking weed. The TLs were given their own suicide prevention workshops. I feel absolutely fantastic, I have to say, said my TL after his. We all do get a bit stressed sometimes, and I suppose it's great to have a few tools to help you deal with it. In his 2011 horror novel, The Thing on the Shore, Tom Fletcher describes a call centre in Cumbria run by a sinister corporation called Interext. Interext's company values are faith, positivity, loyalty and team. The corporate panjandrums behind Interext are intent on opening a gateway to another world, using the phone systems of the call centre as a supernatural lever or key. But the novel is not really interested in this fairly standard conceit. It is really about the horror of late capitalism itself. Fletcher is very good on the varieties of call centre experience. He shows you the overtly racist customers. I don't want to waste my time trying to talk to those packies you people insist on employing. 
the covertly racist customers, it's nice to get somebody English for a change, the capriciously antagonistic customers. The man had spoken so fast that Harry was sure he had been trying to make things difficult for him. The irrelevantly themed office overlays. The incentive had been themed around a contemporary blockbuster film release. The contradictory orders. So the advisors here are simultaneously pushing for payment, keeping their calls as short as possible and trying to ensure that all the customers are satisfied. The content-free emails. This is primarily as a result of failure against service levels and abandonment rates where performance on both overloaded and other causes is poor. And the decline in your physical health. Every group of new starters, fresh, fit, attractive, lively, would eventually all put on weight and slacken around the eyes and mouth, start to look bored, start to move more slowly. The plot of the thing on the shore hinges on the notion, immediately comprehensible to anyone who has ever worked in a call centre, that in some basic ontological or phenomenological sense, call centres are not real places. Quote, After three or four calls, Yasmin started to get a feeling that she frequently experienced at work. It was the feeling that the fabric of this place was thin, thinner than in other places. Part of it was down to the fact that inside the building you could really have been anywhere because of the generic office accommodation, the bland decor, the horrible veneer surface desks, the rows of humming computers. The other major reason for the thinness was the nature of the work performed there the baselessness of it, the sense of existing only at the end of a telephone. Every fucking phone call is a kind of reduction, she thought. A reduction of me. The phone jockeys of the thing on the shore all suffer from depression and buried rage. This is a manager named Brackett. Quote, I am 36, he imagined himself saying. I am 36 and I spend the majority of my waking hours pretending to be interested in what's going on around me. I pretend to like people. I pretend to care about what I'm doing. But everything I see and everything I hear and everything I have to do makes me angry. My anger is very deep and very distant. I keep it very deep and very distant. I am 36 years old and I hide myself. I hide myself so that I can keep my job. I read the thing on the shore just before I turned 36, a few weeks before I left the major provider, to take up a university teaching job. Beside this paragraph, in the margin, I drew a thick black line. When I left the major provider, the symptoms of my major depressive episode began to lift. My inner arias grew more upbeat and timbre. I realised that for 18 months I had been feeling so worthless, so angry and sad that I had found it difficult to meet the eyes of another human being. After a week or two, I was no longer startled on the verge of sleep by humiliating aural hallucinations of my own sales pattern. I no longer dreamed about processing endless TV orders, though I did, once, have a nightmare in which I struggled up a limitless hill of quicksand urged on by the distant figure of my TL. I no longer fantasised about toting a shotgun through the lobby of the major provider's run-down HQ. My gastritis disappeared. I resumed work on a novel that I liked. I finished a draft. Early in the manuscript of that book, my narrator finds himself working in a call centre. Quote, through a concatenation of circumstances that I didn't fully understand, he reflects, I had been banished to one of capitalism's dingy boiler rooms where I stoked profits for people I would never meet. Eventually, he escapes his period of phone jockey servitude, but he is haunted by the possibility that one day he will be forced to go back. On the floor, at around 7pm on a June evening, 
if the blinds are still up. You can see the imperial blue of a midsummer sky rising above the neighbouring office blocks. Sunlight falls in diagonal lines across the bays as the agents in their headsets murmur and type, murmur and type. Happy people value being here, says the poster on the wall. How can I help you today? And that was Kevin Power reading his essay in the Coal Centre, which was published in number 70, the spring 2018 issue of the Dublin Review. Kevin, thank you so much for reading that for us. I really enjoyed listening to you. Thank you. Um, I think I have post-traumatic stress disorder from reading that. (laughs) Brings it all back. Well... Yeah, it is really affecting. And I think you touched on this earlier because it's an experience that we've all had and a very stressful experience um, phoning call centres because you don't get what you want. So when I read this essay, the part where you say nobody can help you, I thought, oh, my God, it was true because I it brings out the worst in me on the other end of the phone. Like I am definitely the capriciously antagonistic caller, you know, so it made me wonder, first of all, do you call call centres and how do you behave <laughs> on the phone now? Because you know you're not going to get what you want. Yeah, that, that was highly instructive. And I do, you say you're capriciously antagonistic, but it's not capricious. There is a reason that you are angry and frustrated. It's because the system is designed in a way to kind of keep you, A, keep you on the phone for as long as possible and B, try and sell you something that you don't necessarily want or need. Mm. And every every kind of, the whole emphasis of, of our training in the call centre was precisely that. So you're calling up to do something which to your mind is relatively simple and should be easy to achieve. But the system is literally built not to do that. Mm -hmm. It really is. But I think it was more, you know, reading it, I kind of thought, God, I have so little empathy for the person on the other end of the phone because there is something, as you say, in this really dehumanizing about it. They Mm -hmm. don't seem like real, real places. Yeah, they they aren't. You know, I, I, in a way, the major providers call centre felt very slightly more real than the other call centre I had worked in previously, which was um, business to business, where really you are you are a kind of node in an abstract system of of information uh, and sales. And and it, you know, there's no you're not there's no product that you can put your finger on that you're selling. You're kind of generating a lead, which is just a minor twitch of interest in in, in one other business that mm. you know yet another business can then pants on and attempt to try and make sort of largely abstract sums of money out of. And, and you really do feel that what you're doing has no human value whatsoever. Um, selling selling something actually feels very slightly more, um, you know, looking back, it feels very slightly more human, more humanizing. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there, it was the case that if I successfully sold somebody something, a man would drive out in a van and put a satellite dish in their house and they would be able to watch TV and they would mm-hmm. get something, you know, because of what I had done. Looking back, that was very slightly redeeming of what was overall um, a very awful and frustrating experience. Mm. But to answer your first question, no, I, I avoid calling call centers at all costs now. I really do. My bill, my TV and broadband bill, um, I, <laughs> the line in that essay where I say, anyone who pays full price is a fool. Well, I am now that fool because I will not call them to bring the price down. I cannot do that to myself or to the person on the other end of the phone for whom I still have a great deal of empathy, you know? Yeah. I don't want to put them through having to talk to me, having to keep me on the phone for ages, trying not to, you know, give me a, a, a discount. Yeah, I was about to do that, but having read your essay, I was like, actually, no, I don't want to pay more. <laughs> I'll just do it. Um, the other thing that struck me when um, I reread the essay, because I've read your second novel, White City, in the meantime, and... Um, I was reminded of Ben's experience in Blue Vista and particularly Richie, his team leader, and the kind of the, you know, the 
business speak, that corporate speak and passive aggression that's going on there. Um, and I just thought, you know, a lot of writers say this, that there is no wasted experience. You know, that obviously that was a huge influence. You're writing about your own life, but it's Ben's life. And um, yeah, could you talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I <laughs> there is no wasted experience. Actually, I think that's broadly true um, for anyone. I don't think that's just true of writers. I think one of our one of our jobs in life is to is to just to think about what happens to us and try and make some kind of sense out of it. That's what helps us grow. And writing is just a very kind of concentrated way of doing that. I think. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean that. Uh, it, Having written this essay, I then didn't want to kind of duplicate too much material for the novel, and and, and I, so I put him in the other more abstract, more depressing uh, business to business call center, um, and gave him a boss who was a sort of synthesis of various awful bosses that I had had during my various call center experiences. And what characterized these bosses? They were all fairly young guys; they're all men, um, and they are they're men who very very invested, unconsciously invested in in stereotypical ideas of manliness, masculinity. Um, but they find themselves in this abstract environment where deadlifting, you know, whatever it is, 5,000, you know, kilos a week or whatever the hell they do, is, is it, 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 it has no advantage, you know. They're building themselves, they're sculpting themselves pointlessly. And they go, but what they do all day is sit in an office listening on a headset and typing on a computer. So there's a kind of pathos, but also a kind of comedy there to the, the fact that they bring all these old kind of bullshit ideas about being a big, strong, tough man who can, you know, take anyone in a fight and, you know, bring home the bacon. Mm. <laughs> but what they're doing is they've been, whether they know it or not, they've been, that kind of model of masculinity has been completely subverted by, well, let's call it late capitalism, by kind of, you know, um, abstract abstract capital, which is what you kind mm. of are on the front line of in a call center in a funny way. Um, and so they're both, you know, they get they get angry about this and they don't know why. Um, and they try desperately to make selling broadband over the phone into some kind of manly activity, into some kind of masculine, winnable game. So they say, yeah, smash it. Yeah, I really hit my attraction stats this week. Um, and that to me was both, both pathetic and funny. Um, because it's not the kind of man I am and it's not the kind of model of masculinity. I, I, maybe I was, because I'm more of a nerd and, and more interested in books, um, I was able to see probably more clearly than, than those guys that what we were doing was, was depressing and, and, and pointless, uh, mm. you know, that we were being paid pathetically small amounts of money, even the, TIC, the two ICs and the TLs, um, you know, to kind of trot out a corporate line and, and make money for people you know, the CEO or the the MD would come in periodically and these guys are in driving Porsches and, and you know, Bentleys and, and they're living in beautiful houses in South Dublin and, and the the inequality there, you know, they weren't aware of it or they were aware of it and it was unconscious and they, again, there was a lot of unconscious anger there. Mm. Anyway, I didn't want to dilate too much on that whole thing in, in the novel because the novel was after other stuff. But I would like to maybe at some point write about what it means to try and be a man in that old-fashioned way in a context that just renders it pointless and, and you know. They should be out farming or building houses uh, with those well, muscles. Well, that's yeah. what they think, they th you know, yeah, or, or they yeah. feel. And, and that's, yeah. there's nothing wrong with that, you know. Yeah. I don't mean to criticise people for going to the gym at all or, or for kind of building up their muscles. It's, it's, as, it's as valid a, a way to spend your time as any other, I think. But uh, 
I think it's the dissonance and that keeps coming up in this essay you know that there is this cognitive and emotional dissonance and one of the um, the ways that it comes out is and again I'll go back to White City because this comes across in the essay and in the novel um, your second your difficult second novel (laughs) that you did eventually write was this idea of the life you think you're going to have it's all lined up you know it was all lined up for you you do you know really well received first novel was picked up great film won the Rooney Prize and then your life kind of just it didn't pan out the way it was supposed to pan out and there is that that dissonance I suppose there Um, so what I'm wondering is how difficult or easy was it to write about I don't like the word failure but I think failure is the word that you've used for it but you know how, how difficult was it to put that out there to take the risk of exposing yourself in that way to say look I'm struggling and I failed and should I? I mean, you really, you know, give yourself a kicking even in this essay for not achieving what you thought you were supposed to achieve, your destiny. I suppose to achieve is the key though, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I've thought, I've given this a great deal of thought and I've written about it in, in, other, in other essays. Um, then in a way, becoming a, becoming a writer at all when, at the age of so 27, which is what happened to me, was in many ways the worst thing that could have happened to me because I had lived up until that time with the with the notion that I was special. I was a writer. I was going to be a writer. Um, and therefore, I had avoided growing in various important ways. Um, things like, you know, just learning that you have to have a job that has money, that puts, puts money in your account. You know, these were all, you know, you have to look into things like a pension and, you know, all of this practical stuff. I had avoided learning that because I assumed uh, in my innocence that becoming a writer would simply solve all of these problems for me. And of course, it doesn't. Um, but to be, to find age 27 that the world is willing to collaborate you on your delusion um, mm. is very psychologically dangerous place to be. And, and I, was, I was set up for failure at that point. Mm. Um, looking back, I think it was inevitable um, because I wasn't prepared um, to, become, to become a writer. When I published my second novel, I, I had been around the block a few times and I had... I'd had a few kickings, but, you know, the world kicks you around. Um, you just, this happens to everyone simply by virtue of being alive for a certain number of years. Um, but that's that's salutary, that's psychologically healthy mm. if you experience that and learn to learn to deal with it without relying on a kind of magic bullet, you know, oh, I'll be a writer, that will solve my problems. Mm. Um, so I, I, I think it was necessary to write about failure for me um, to kind of come to terms with it and to, and to make writing about something other than being special. That was what I was doing, you know. It's very tempting, all writers know how tempting it is to use writing as a defense mechanism, as a psychological defense mechanism. If you say, it's okay, I'll write about it. And we talked about this earlier, that no experience is lost. That's true. But... Um, I think it's vitally important that writing not be a psychological defense mechanism and certainly not your only psychological defense mechanism. Mm. <laughs> um, because writing can fail you. It can let you down. Writing is writing involves tons of failure. Um, you know, you write drafts that don't work. You write whole novels that don't work. This is just part of the job. And that doesn't stop once you you leave or appear to leave your apprenticeship. That doesn't, mm. that doesn't change. Um, so by... What, in a way, writing this essay was a way of was a way of writing about failure and thereby of of, of robbing writing of some of its specialness for me and, and some mm. of its glamour. 
It's interesting how you go from believing that you're special then publishing the book and then suddenly being struck by imposter syndrome. Mm. I'm really interested in imposter syndrome and the phrase that you use in this essay, this area of self-reproach, you know, this feeling that you're a fraud. But so many artists and writers in particular, um, I wouldn't even say suffer, they just live with imposter syndrome. I don't know how many books you need to write or how many great (laughs) reviews you have to get for that to go away. This idea that you're a fraud and you're going to be found out. And I'm curious as to what causes that. Is it all the time spent alone, all the time spent in your head? Why do you think it it is such a phenomenon? I did, yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure there is such a thing as imposter syndrome as such, actually. Um, my sense of it is that, so, you know, people often say they, they start a new job that they've always wanted and they say, oh, God, I have such imposter syndrome. I said, well, you don't really. It's because you don't yet know how to do that job. Um, and that, that happens to writers every time they sit down to write a piece. They don't know, you don't know how to do it, mm-hmm. especially something as long as a book. Um, so you, you are learning. And the, the, the set of feelings that, that people often kind of tag as imposter syndrome, I think are more often just the normal feelings of learning and growing um, because at every point in life, God help us, we we have to learn some new way of being, some new set of skills. Mm. Um, I mean, I became a father there three years ago, just over three and a half years ago. And, you know, I don't I didn't know what the hell I was doing. It took, it, it was, it was a hideous year and a half or two before I, you know, started to feel, okay, all right, you know, I have some way of coping with this change. Um, and that, but that's, that's, that is the kind of paradigmatic experience of most people as they grow. Um, they're cast into a new di- difficult situation that they have to learn. So, of course, they feel like an imposter because they kind of are. Um, they don't know what they're doing until they do. Um, and unfortunately, the way life works and the way art works is that you learn how to write one thing and then you've written it and it's gone and you don't know you, you then rarely can bring the skill, the same set of skills to bear on the next thing um, yeah I don't know unless unless you want to kind of write the same book over and over which I don't want to do um, or don't seem to know how, how to do um, I have to because I'm trying to figure out how to do a third novel now and I say I, I, nothing I learned in the first two novels is going to be much use to me mm. um, well you do have a book coming out this year um, can you tell me a little bit about that Yes, this is a book of essays, mostly literary essays and reviews. It's called The Written World, and mm-hmm. Lily Potter publishing it in May, um, 19th of May. Uh, and it is it puts together one of the... It, it's, it, it's kind of an explanation for why my second novel took so long, which is because that I kind of went back to start an apprenticeship, realizing that I was not knowledgeable enough or skilled enough or mature enough or you know sensible enough to be any kind of working writer. So I decided to start small, and I did... Reviews and I wrote, started writing literary essays, and and that was a, a way of, a way of of chipping away at what I guess we can call imposter syndrome. You know, that mm. the more I wrote them, the more I sort of felt little bits of confidence building up, and that's a much better way of approaching it than what I actually did, which was nothing and then a novel <laughs> that did really well. It's much better to start a writing career with experience of writing small stuff, short start with short stories, start with essays, start with columns, reviews, whatever. Um, because then you can build up the kind of experience of working with editors and, and mm. revising and, and even just just finishing something small that can be a great boost to confidence. Um, so anyway, this book, it collects most of these pieces, most of the good ones. There are a lot of bad ones um, that I did over the last, say, 10 years. This collects the good ones. Um, There's pieces in there on Ross Carl Kelly and Megan Nolan's book, Acts of Desperation, and Greta Thunberg, 
uh, Martin Amos, Susan Sontag, Norman Mailer, a lot of writers who were meaningful to me. Yeah, there's pieces about them in there. Okay. Well, Kevin, look, it's been a real pleasure talking to you today and it's um, really enjoyed revisiting in the call centre with you. So thanks for joining us on uh, the Dublin Review podcast. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to the Dublin Review podcast presented by Angela Flannery and produced in association with Molly, the Museum of Literature Ireland. The Dublin Review is supported by the Arts Council of Ireland and is published quarterly. For more information or to subscribe, go to thedublinreview.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at the Dublin Review.